So as kind of a related to our, our topic today, I was curious, do, do either of you know who the person was that when he was asked why they rob banks, his response was, because that's where the money is? No. I was going to say, I was really hoping that Matthew knew this one. I was like, I feel like you would know because I have no idea. It feels like something Ned Kelly would say, but I doubt that's the answer. Nah, it's it's Willie Sutton, and I was gonna I was gonna start out the question that says, does anybody know who Willie Sutton is? But but this one works just as well too. So um, the reason we're going through it today is we were going to talk about some of the the threats that are facing the finance industry. Um, so actually, I think a great place to start is um, what is the finance industry? Yeah, and just really quick before we get rolling for all of our people listening, of who are we? And why are we talking about the finance industry? Um, so we're on our Tech for Business podcast season two. We're getting rolling. I'm Kelsey. I'm part of our marketing team here moderating. We have Todd Sorg, our COO and CISO. chief CISO. I was like, you have a lot of titles. You get multiple titles here sitting down. And then Matthew is joining us. He's our GRC analyst. Remember that from last week? Got you. <laughs> and so as Todd mentioned, we're starting off with what does count as the finance industry? Fantastic question. Um, just as a quick side note, I do sometimes feel like Chandler in that my uh, title is not very easy to remember. And so oftentimes I feel like I'm having to explain what my job is to friends. Um, <laughs> but in terms of what is the finance industry, um, the the short answer is that there's a, a lot of, you know, government regulation of, of money, um, as I'm sure we've all seen on every paycheck. Uh, and as part of that, it kind of falls under uh, their guidance of, of what counts as the finance industry. And they have uh, regulations uh, that fall under FFIEC and FDIC and FTC. And these are all different titles that they've added um, to these regulation systems that they use to define what is and isn't. If you fall under those regulations, or if you assist a company that falls under those regulations, then you are considered to be part of the finance industry. Can I take a shot at it? Yeah, probably I'm a quicker sad. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my summary of it is, um, it, well, I'll try to stay away from the alphabet soup, um, but I would say it's basically anything that that's in an industry where they're handling money to a large degree. So that's going to be your typical, your banks, et cetera, or it's going to be places that are dealing with personal information that we would be generated with finance. So, you know, a great example would be a car dealer that's trying to do a loan for you or something along those lines. So anybody that's essentially dealing with people and money, finance industry. That makes much sense, right? Yeah. Much better, less inside way to answer that question. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say all of the acronyms that we can Google on the side that we just said, but that makes sense. Car industry, not necessarily just retail. There has to be that extra layer of information going on instead of money, just trading spots. Cool. Yeah. So then what makes the finance industry unique? So I think Todd kind of pointed this out in his uh, his opening remarks is that people steal from banks because that's where the money is. And and the the largest motivator of of cybercrime is monetary gain. So of course they're gonna go for the places where they have the highest monetary gain. Um, Verizon puts out a fantastic report every year of the the last year's breaches that have been reported upon. Um, and within that they showed that 95% of, of attacks pretty much across the board 
are financially motivated. So it doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're impacted, it's because they were trying to gain something financially. When we look at the financial industry, we start to see the numbers go up exponentially because more people are trying to get into them because there's more money there than there is in other industries. Yeah, somebody had used a quote the other day that that said, uh, historically, the most value used to be a variety of different things, you know, whether it was gold or diamonds or whatever the case may be Uh, today, it's data. And mm-hmm. more more often than not, personal data is where it's really at. And that's where cybercrime is really coming from. Um, and, and kind of connecting the dots to some degree, when it comes to personal data, it could be anything, right? So I mentioned the loans in particular, mortgage companies, car dealer, doesn't really matter. The whole intent of this is to game the system, if you will, and try to find a way to use that to your benefit so you can make more money. Um, not encouraging anybody to do that by the way, just saying that's the motivation behind it all. This isn't how to rob a bank or how to rob the finance industry. (laughs) Bummer. But talking to you about all of the attacks, what kind of attacks when we're talking attacks? Sure. I, I, so um, I, I would say you, if you've heard us talk, we, we tend to talk about the same things. Regardless of the year, I would say probably starting about five years ago, the attacks are pretty much the same. It's the usual suspects. Uh, movie referencing, in case anybody doesn't know much about crime movies, that's a good one. Um, but it, it tends to be phishing, right? Phishing with a bullet is the number one, especially in the finance industry. It's how almost everything begins. There are a lot of other ways that attacks can happen. Vulnerability exploitation. exploitation. Wow, that was tough for me. Um, insider threats, you name it. But but the reality is almost everything starts with phishing. And the reason is because it's easy. It's easy for the bad guys. They know how to manipulate personal people, behavior, etc. And more often than not, the follow-up to that typically is ransomware. Yeah. And uh, one of the, the main changes we've seen in the ransomware space, and I think we've mentioned this on other podcasts, is that Commonly now, when when you're hit with ransomware, it's not an instantaneous attack. They've been in your system for a little bit, and they have occasionally and and more often than not exfiltrated some of that data, so they've still got it. This means they can then exploit it later on, um, sometimes receiving threats months after the initial attack, um, saying, we still have your data, pay us X amount to delete it. One of the other, on top of that, we have, in my opinion, one of the most interesting parts of why the financial industry is is different, which is how many, how a simple human error can cause so much trouble within that space. Um, Typing in, we have the obvious ones that happen to everyone of just typing in the wrong account number and all of a sudden you've sent X amount of money to the wrong person. Uh, That that's compounded when you're in the industry and you're working on these systems that require you to transfer that money in a different way. Maybe it's sending money to a third party vendor uh, and and someone's using a phishing as as the intro to that has gotten you to send a large quantity of money elsewhere. This mis- they call them miscellaneous errors and and those types of mistakes and those types of tricks are what constitute a significant portion of where this money is going and why it's manipulated. Uh, so a couple of things there. I mean, w- one thing in particular that kind of resonated with me at the end of that that statement that you just made was that um, <clears throat> being in the tech industry, we often focus on technical 
tools that this is how you solve these types of things. Um, and, and what you're talking about here is almost always mitigated by doing common sense, for lack of a better term, is doing administrative controls, right? There's there's something that's called um, dual authority. So you have the ability to separate duties. One person can make the change, another person has to authorize it. That eliminates that concern of going, hey, I got this message that said I'm going to change this account number over to this one and just doing it. If you have to ask somebody else, that automatically slows you down and, and starts to get into other methods that help mitigate risk in general. Um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned that there's a lot of manipulation that goes on. Um, a lot of times when you see phishing that, and I know we're kind of tangenting a little bit here, but a lot of times when you see phishing, it is really designed to build some sort of urgency in you. Like you need to do something now, please do it now. It's Christmas time. You got to get out of the office. Go, 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 go. And that's the kind of stuff that typically gets you. Exactly. You, you went exactly where I was thinking about it as well is because we're talking money we're talking that financial side there is a sense of urgency that goes with all of it and some of the uh the biggest hacks i can think of the biggest data breaches are based around the idea of someone losing something significant whether it's large business deals or um integrations or, or they're missing out on something because the money can't be sent fast enough quote unquote <laughs> and that's what tricks or forces someone's hand in a situation where maybe they're unsure it's always taking that breath um as i'm sure we've all seen businesses tend not to move at the speed of light there does tend to be a little bit of bureaucracy to it and a lot of that is to make sure that those decisions are being made correctly it's to make sure that everyone's seen it and approves of it and when you're transferring money having that dual authority just having someone to go Really? Is that what they asked for? Can be incredibly useful. <laughs> Which, I mean, my brain kind of goes towards, so you're saying, okay, dual authority, how do you sell C-levels on implementing that? Because my brain, I'm like, okay, you're waiting on somebody, they're in a meeting, they're not approving it, you're getting a sense of urgency, and yes, it could be phishing, or maybe you really just do need to get it done. Does the benefit outweigh the risk? Uh, yeah, the benefit does absolutely does. outweigh the risk. Um, <laughs> how you get it, um, it, it with a C-level is you basically bring it to them in risk, right? So it, it, that's a conversation the C-level is always understanding. And when you're talking risk, um, I don't know if we've done a risk um, podcast yet, but maybe it's a good one. It's really kind of the what you're trying to decide is how much, if something went wrong, how much would that cost you? And whether that's lost time or revenue or whatever the case may be, that's the context you're trying to use. So an example that Matthew just said is, um, you know, we actually helped an organization that had one of these types of attacks happen directly. And they they basically were trying to move money overseas and they were trying to hit the time and, and making all of that happen. And um what they were doing was they had moved over half a million dollars and they moved it over to, I forget where it was, but I'll say it was China. And as that was happening, the CEO was getting on to a plane and he was going, Hey, I, I'm not available. You can't get a hold of me. And that's when it all started happening. So that the, the bad guys, unfortunately had very good insights as to what was happening. And the person was going, well, it's the CEO. He's asking for the money. I better send it. Um, when you talk to them and say, well, a dual control here would have stopped it, the risk is if I don't use the dual control, I might send over half a million dollars. Are you okay waiting an hour? Yep. 
typically. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then part two <laughs> for that would be uh, the term we would use is elevate and delegate. So it's not up to a specific individual to do it. You can go find the people that have the wherewithal to say, I'm going to delegate this to you because I believe you have the the capabilities of handling this. Matthew, anything you'd add to that? No, I think you're exactly where I would have gone with it. The how much are you regularly moving, right? If you want to create this risk, how much is being sent? Do you always authorize that? Probably not. But if it were a mistake, how much is that going to impact what you're doing? Um, I've the story that always comes to mind for me is the uh, the deep fake story of the uh, company that thirty six million dollars was sent to finalize a deal because someone had deep faked the director's voice and they didn't have dual authority on it. And that's such a large amount of money that the fact that it happened once. It doesn't matter who it happened to. It doesn't matter what depa- what uh, vertical it was in or what business you're in. That's a real thing that happened. And that that's a $36 million mistake that could have been fixed with policy. Um, so that's the risk for me is could you lose that in a merger, in in an acquisition? What's What's your number? And then maybe just make a rule that says anything over this amount needs it. If it would impact too significantly, you can make processes that have caveats and limits on them. Uh, so anyways, we, we went into pretty deeply into that specific type of threat, and it, it is a real one. We don't see it nearly as much as we see phishing and ransomware. Um, the reason why I went back to it is ultimately those, those are easy. Um, Matthew, do you have any insights on who's behind crime like that, whether it's if it's uh, ransomwares or even trying to to move money to other accounts, who's typically behind those kinds of uh, attacks? Such a fun question. Um, so the short version is what we would now call organized crime, um, which I'm sure brings up images for some people of Scorsese films and, <laughs> and things like that. But where we're talking here about organized, large organized groups of hacking teams and Generally, we're talking about groups that have either been around or have been working together for decades at this point. Some of them are state run. Some of them are just groups of private citizens who have a skill set. Occasionally, it's just a single individual who's bought a tool that can do these types of things or a single individual who's figured out that there's a mistake on someone's back end that they can take advantage of in an API. Um, it's, it's a split. But the organized crime side of things is where I I think the majority of this is coming from. And it's why we're seeing continuous and consistent messaging from it. I I agree. It's 100 percent fun. It's a good conversation. I'm all excited (laughs) now. Let's dig into it. Um, I I agree. So so one of the things Matthew mentioned was he talked about tools that you can buy. So there are tools that are out on the dark web where you can do ransomware as a service again i'm not encouraging it please don't ever do that but i'm just giving you insights as how those types of things work and and they're all again financially motivated so there is a fee that you pay for them and then more often than not those individuals that have set up the tools will take a portion of whatever you manage to get um and that's how they make money and they didn't really have to do anything you got to do all the fun um 
Not that you would do that, listener. Um, and then the other one, the organized crime, I actually think is wildly fascinating. And and Kelsey's going to have to cut me off as we start going down this piece. As Matthew mentioned it, there are organized crime that can be state level. So state level would be other countries. But there are also organized crime that have whole organization. I mean, they run it like a business. They have HR, they have websites to the point where they actually have customer service. So uh, unfortunately, we get to be in a situation where we help a lot of organizations out when they've been through an event like this. And um, sometimes the portal as you're going in to start the negotiations or whatever is is very customer friendly, if you will. And by that, what I mean is they communicate to you like they're a customer service rep. They talk about Hey, here's things you could do to improve your security. Hey, it's been a pleasure doing business with you. It's it's remarkable. I mean, it sounds like the stuff right out of a Scorsese movie, but yeah. it's all true. They've they've clearly hired UI and UX developers <laughs> to to put the site together. Um, it's it's very in some of the cases very professional looking. It's it looks as legitimate as they can make it and sometimes better than websites you'll use on a regular basis because they're trying to make it as simple as possible for every person who finds their way there. Um yeah, I don't know what else to say to that. It's it's <laughs> so the effort that's gone into making this an easy an easy profit station for them and more importantly a profitable business for some of these organizations is ridiculous. There are um, people who are being prosecuted regularly because they spun one up quickly and made a couple million dollars and then tried to shut it down and got caught because you should get caught. Um, But to be able to make that amount of money in that time is why it's an organized crime. It's why there's groups this way. So shutting it down and it being worked on the way it is, the crimes that you're committing when you do this are significant. Uh, And if you follow along with a lot of the alerts that come out um, from the FBI headquarters, you'll see that a lot of the times or or regularly there's someone else getting caught for trying to do something like this. Um, But that's. There was actually one in Australia just the other day of a, a kid who bought the data from one of the uh, the telecommunications hacks that happened in Australia recently, and he was depositing the amount into his primary bank account in Australia um, because he had just bought the data and was trying to blackmail people with it. So <laughs> it's it's possible to be done, but you shouldn't do it, obviously. But it could be coming from anywhere. Uh, when it comes to the business side of things, it is far more this organized crime side, though. Um, I think, right. We, sorry, Todd, I was going to say we could delve into an entire podcast on just how this works, because I was like, well, that sounds better than some of the customer service I've been a part of. Not that I want to, but (laughs) I suppose where there's money, you can hire expensive tools and whatever. So, but as we're going through that, right, and we're thinking through who we normally talk to, smaller credit unions, banks, do we see that same kind of organized crime targeting those types of organizations? Yeah, I, I, oddly enough, that's exactly what I was going to go to next. Um, but but because you said what you did, you said that service was good. I'm going to have to tangent. I just can't help it. But the one thing that I think is fascinating about it, so we probably do need this this other podcast, is if you make sense and you look at that and say it's a business, 
they're dealing with people on a professional level. They're actually doing negotiations and all kinds of stuff. And and they are trying to build a reputation, as stupid as that sounds. But when they're working with an insurance company, they've got a relationship as we're reasonable, we're good, we'll give you the tips, we'll actually delete the data. That means something to the insurance company. And they're like, well, this group is easy to work with. And so it is 100% a business and it is the dumbest thing ever, but it also makes a lot of sense. Um, so anyways, going back to the, the question that you asked was specifically, does it matter? And that was going to be the question I was going to ask Matthew too. Does it matter how mature your organization is? Will they come after you no matter what? Or what? Is it big, small, lots of money, rural? Does it matter? In my opinion, no. <laughs> I, I think that there's a, a, this is the logic I use with with family members and, and friends of mine as well. And I think it applies to businesses too, which is that generally they're getting a hold of, it, it starts with phishing generally, right? People are getting a list of emails and they're just hitting as many of them as possible with potential ransomware, potential, you know, phishing emails of different types, whatever it is they're looking for. Sometimes they may get a list of just C levels and they'll go for something a little more specific, but you're often getting caught in the crossfire of a marketing campaign effectively. Like it's it's very large, very wide, and you're just one of the names on the list. So you're not being attacked personally until you fall for it. And then you'll start dealing with these people that Todd mentioned who are trained <laughs> to, to manipulate you better as well as convince you that paying a slightly less amount than they originally said you should is a better deal. Um, the, I use a shotgun blast as the argument. They're firing at everything in that range. And if you react to it, they know that, that you are going to react further to it. Uh, and th this happens across the board. So specifically, I like to think of it in terms of how it impacts the the businesses that are sub-businesses, smaller businesses, side businesses, or even um, just work with some of these larger businesses. You are more likely to be impacted and targeted, not because you're being targeted, but because the organizations you work with are bigger in the space. And so again, no one's being some people are obviously personally targeted. That's a, another question for another time. But generally, the the attacks are wide ranging and on specific types of targets. So it'll so just be all finance, et cetera. Well, all I can hear is Tom Hanks in my head from You've Got Mail going, it's not personal, it's business. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, that was a tangent. Todd, go ahead. Well, and it's 100% correct. I, I, so I'm I'm going to agree with everything Matthew said. I, he laid it out extremely well. Um, our experience is everybody's a target. And the reason is, is because everybody's a target. Um, you used to hear a lot a few years ago, well, I'm too small, nobody cares. That is not the case anymore. If you're looking at some car dealer in Omaha, Nebraska, they're just as likely to be attacked as somebody in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. It just doesn't matter. You will be attacked. The less security tools that you have in place and processes and procedures, the worse it's going to hurt. So um, the the next obvious question is, what do you do about it, right? And and that's what we're always here about. So CIT, we're here to kind of help everybody out. We're trying to educate this, this background, all this information of what, why, et cetera, is all here to kind of get you about, okay, we kind of scared you a little bit. Sorry about that. What do you do about it? Matthew? 
there's so much to do about it. <laughs> You're right. I did kind of skip over that question of of how mature is an organization and is that going to make them more prepared for it? And and I think this ties in with that. Yes. Just in the same way that if you have seen something like this happen before, start to finish, you're going to know that process. You're going to be less worried about what it could be. You're going to start to see signs of things that you shouldn't beforehand. We know that a lot of people were falling for those um, gift card scams. I know that some people still do. There's a reason for that, and it's because of those urgencies we talked about before. Tying it back in with what we can do, dual control, dual authority, instantly something you can implement that's going to stop someone from falling for something like that because one or more of the people you speak to are going to say there is no way that person would be requesting xbox gift cards uh <laughs> those are the things that you can that while you may be glossing over because you're stressed and because that sense of urgency has been created someone else is going to pull it back and remind you and those are the things we can look for so whether we're following FTC, FFIEC, FDIC guidelines. There are a lot of cybersecurity guidelines and rules in place to help you find a solution or meet the current standards for what your industry should have. The FTC's uh, final safeguards rule just came out. Um, those of you who are who fall under that are probably very aware uh, because the deadline was just extended by six months. Uh, but following their their requirements is such a fantastic start because we want to when we talk about maturity we don't just talk about getting to a point where you feel comfortable and sticking there it's about finding risk accepting risk and then mitigating risk and then innovating from what is currently accepted as the standard to create better solutions or find better ways of being more secure Yep, 100% agree. Uh, I mean, I think the answer is where you start. A framework is the perfect place, and that's why so many of them exist. There is a lot of overlap regardless of what they are. You know, Matthew ran through a whole bunch of them. But the whole point of it is, is there's a lot of stuff that's built into them. So again, I mentioned we're a tech company, so we talk tech a lot. Tech can be multi-factor authentication. It can be endpoint detection and response. All these things are completely spelled out implicitly throughout all of these documents. All of these frameworks tell you this is how you get there. Now, occasionally they are written in a manner that is designed for a really, really large organization. And, and sometimes that doesn't make sense to everybody. But again, there's people out there that can help you through that process. So if you ever run into those kinds of things, those people exist and they're more than happy to help and train and educate and so forth as well. And I recommend talking to them. Because as someone who has read a lot of these guidelines, I don't, it's not for everyone. Uh, just in general, I, I used to think I didn't have much of an ability to, uh, to read things I didn't find super interesting. So I'm very glad that I do find a lot of this interesting because it is thoroughly boring sometimes. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. I mean, some of these documents are absolutely massive. Uh, when when the first time a revision comes through, you know, whether it's PCI 4.0 or whatever, I'm like, can someone just give me the cliff notes? I don't want to dig through 300 pages. Yeah, that was, I think, I, I think part of the first thing you and I ever worked on together, Todd, was the, uh, the FTC uh, safeguards rule. <laughs> And Please, your cliff notes the... were invaluable as somebody who tried to read the document. And I was like, this is not fun. This is not fun. No, it's not a 100%. good time. 
And then I got distracted reading the comments for a little bit because everyone's comments on these rules before they go live is is also fascinating. Just in case anyone wants to deep dive into it, they're all there. Every organization's comments on why they should or shouldn't implement them exist. Okay, I'm going to play good cop on this one real yep. quick. Not everybody likes these kinds of documents. <laughs> <laughs> so you are not required to read those by any means. No, this is only if you're interested and care. Um <laughs> Maybe there'll be a bonus podcast episode of we'll have you guys just geek out about the comments and the language within these. And I'll sit here and smile and nod while I sip caffeine. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Awesome. I know we're getting close to time here, guys. So any last minute nuggets of wisdom that you want to throw at anybody? Um, I'd like to mention training because I I don't think we kind of went into that, but it, it it covers a lot of the things we talked about, whether it's the uh, people falling for phishing or ransomware or what do you do if these things happen? Training doesn't just mean how to find phishing emails. It means being prepared, having an incident response plan, testing your incident response plan. Do your managers and your your floor staff or whoever you're working with know their different roles? Are they aware of how they Im- interact differently with data and and what that could mean if people come to them with questions, what they can and cannot say? We talk about HIPAA and, and those very clear rules, but there's similar things in terms of what the data can be used for and how it can be transferred with uh, in the financial industry. So that's where I'd focus on. Training is people are still the number one cause for concern when it comes to mistakes occurring. So more training is always my recommendation. Well said. I will leave it at that. <laughs> Dad's like, I agree to all of the above. 100. <laughs> I mean, it, well, it, it is all agreeable. It's he's such an incredibly well-spoken individual. It makes sense to just follow what Matthew says. <laughs> so much love and good vibes ending up today after we're like, there's an organization out to steal your money, but good vibes <laughs> ending it on good vibes. Well, I appreciate you both. Thank you, Nate, uh, Nate, Todd, and Matthew. Nate is not here today. I apologize for that one, guys. But we will be back next week with another episode. But as Todd mentioned, we are here for educational purposes. But if you do need to get a hold of us, if you want to get connected with somebody even outside of Minnesota, Western Wisconsin, we are here to help you get connected. You can email us at info at cit-net.com or head on out to our website, cit-net.com backslash podcast. And we'll chat with you all next week. 